Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the privilege of hosting Dr. Carla Pugh. She's a professor of surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine. She's also director of the Technology-Enabled Clinical Improvement Center. Her clinical area of expertise is acute care surgery, and her research involves the use of simulation and advanced engineering technologies to develop new approaches for assessing and defining competency and clinical procedural skills. Dr. Pugh holds three patents on the use of sensor and data acquisition technology to measure and characterize hands-on clinical skills. Currently, over 200 medical and nursing schools are using one of her sensor-enabled training tools for their students and trainees. Her work has received numerous awards from medical and engineering organizations. In 2011, Dr. Pugh received the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers from President Barack Obama at the White House. She is considered to be a leading international expert on the use of sensors and motion tracking technologies for performance measurement. In 2014, she was invited to give a TED-Med talk on the potential uses of technology to transform how we measure clinical skills in medicine. Recently, Dr. Pugh was introduced into the American Institute for Medical and Biological Engineering, as well as the American College of Surgeons Academy of Master Surgeon Educators. So it is a true privilege to hear her thoughts on today's podcast. We're going to be focusing in on what she believes is most important in healthcare and hearing some of her ideas and beliefs on where healthcare is going today. So without further ado, just want to give you a warm welcome, Dr. Pugh. Thank you so much, Saul. I look forward to um, our minutes and time together that we have this morning. So excited to be here. Thank you. It's a privilege. Now, I'd love to ask you, what is it that got you into the medical sector? That happened when I was five. Wow. (laughs) I'm one of those sort of straight and focused uh, persons who, um, after hearing a number of family um, stories about my great aunt and great grandmother, one on my mom's side, one on my dad's side of the family. They were actually midwives and veterinarians, um, both of them, you know, on the farm in the rural South. And as a five-year-old, my interpretation of what they did and the stories I heard about them, I assumed they were doctors. And so that was was my plan. I'm going to be like those two amazing women. And that's, you know, that was my interpretation and never gave up. Oh, that is wonderful. Oh, I love that story. And and it's so neat that you just got fixated on it and said, this is what they're doing. I'm inspired and I'm going for it. And you haven't looked back since. Nope. Exactly that's right. So neat. That's so neat. And, and you know, one of the things that I find really interesting about your work, Carla, is is your focus on on sensors and measuring. You know, today we're we're in this value-based care world where we're we're trying to get there. And so Measurements have never been more important. I'd love to hear from you what you believe needs to be on health leaders' agendas and how you're approaching that. Well, I, it's two areas. I mean, everything to me centers around data and creating new data streams that actually quantify things that were previously or currently only qualitative. And, you know, I think when you look at what guides some of our healthcare decisions, treatments, and policies today, it's based on years of 
what I would say good data, but there's still a fair amount of subjectivity and different ways of interpreting that data. And I think we've learned a lot, but I think that now, instead of trying to improve upon some of those areas, patient surveys and things like that, for example, there's different data, there's different technology that enables us to collect data that kind of takes out the human interpretation, emotion part of it. And I, and I don't seem mean to, to be one of the young persons who totally believes in data and the world take over new data and get rid of the old. I think, there's a, I think you have to pay attention to history. I think that there is some truth, definitely truth, in qualitative and survey and interview data and policies that were handed down. But I think if you take a look at the decisions we've made based on that data and combine it with new data, we could get a lot further. Yeah, that's such an interesting thought. And so I'd love to hear some examples of, of what you're thinking here. Well, I mean, I, I, I think just for example, wow, <laughs> there's one thing that I've, it's just funny because it just happened sort of serendipitously, but a week in my life, there was just a preponderance of comments, questions, uh, news articles, and things that have come up regarding blood pressure. And simply me as a physician who uses sensors for everything, I came in for my physical exam and had a nurse practitioner take my blood pressure. And it was just such an interesting experience for me to be aware of how she placed the blood pressure cuff on my arm. I thought it was loose, but I didn't say anything. Yeah. I didn't say anything. I was like, wow, that's interesting. That seems a little more loose than the previous 10 years of, you know, going in once a year to get uh, yeah. if, an, an exam. And it seemed more, more loose than other times. And so I just let it go because I was curious, like, what blood pressure she would come up with when it was loose. I don't even remember what it was because it's not a big deal. But all <laughs> I know is that when I got home, because I have a home blood pressure cuff, I did the miniature <laughs> experiment uh, in yeah. of one. I put it on tight and looked at the blood pressure and I put it on loosely and looked at the blood pressure. And there was a 30 point difference in the systolic was there really? blood pressure. Wow. 30 points. I was blown away. That's a big difference. So then I go back to, okay, great. There are a whole lot of companies that have, it is the mainstay for people that have high blood pressure or want to know they buy these cuffs from Walgreens and, you know, CVS and all these places. And there are millions of people who are taking their blood pressure at home. Yeah, that's interesting. So is there- Our whole system is based on, is based on, yes, take the blood pressure, but we hadn't gone back and look at, are we actually getting accurate data? And now we're, I mean, we're giving medications for years based on a protocol. Mm -hmm. You take the blood pressure three times. If it's elevated, then that means you actually have high blood pressure and then you start your medications. That is really interesting. So this, this gap, right, and this vari variability, right? A lot of folks are saying, hey, take the variability out and Im you'll improve outcomes. I mean, how do we do that in this particular instance? There's so many devices out there. Yeah, I mean, and so, so there, there are, what I was excited to see is that the AMA, again, that same week, like I said, it was just serendipity and I was inundated with all of these things. But the AMA, American Medical Association, that same week put out yes. this call for proposals in terms of local health systems making it their focus to try and get accurate blood pressure. And it was just interesting to have, you know, this. Huh. And this was after you saw the article after. It was after. 
<laughs> yeah, I saw the article after yeah. I had just come from there and then did my own personal experience. But anyway, I th- I, all that to say is that the conversation has come back to surface and people are looking at what we've done in the past. And, you know, I think there was an article that came out that said there's two parts of it. One, people who take their blood pressure medicine at nighttime actually have lower blood pressure during the day. And that was one of the recommendations. And then there were some arguments about what is considered hypertension and revisiting all of that data. And should it be, you know, should we be shooting for 120 over 80 or should we actually be shooting for 110? And then others said it should be 130. We should be more loose. What's so amazing to me is that all of those recommendations, and this is the example, all of those recommendations are based on manual blood pressure cuffs or even the computer blood pressure cuffs, but there's still a human in the loop in terms of applying that cuff. Right. And so then I'm looking at all of these companies that are trying to get in the space of using sensor technology to actually capture blood pressure. So forget the cuff. But some of them, as I looked more deeply, they're actually just miniaturizing the blood pressure cuff and putting it on your wrist. I think there's a company, Omron, that has, and it looks like, you know, it looks like a watch and it's really cool. But then when you get down into the specs of it, it actually is still a blood pressure cuff. But even in that instance, because it's a watch and because it's standardized, that means that you're actually not, you know, once you decide, you know, what loophole that the watch fits your wrist, then at least it's consistent data, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that just kind of is an example where all of our research for the past 30 years on blood pressure is based on using a blood pressure cuff. And with the story that I told you that we know that it's inconsistent. But if you think about a wearable blood pressure sensor, that can actually change the whole game. Right. Because now we, we don't really know what could only only data that we have huh. of continuous blood pressure monitoring is invasive monitoring within a hospital system when we actually put catheters inside your artery. Yeah. But those are usually under it's usually when you're in the intensive care unit and you're very sick. Obviously, we can't do that invasive study on a healthy person. But now I'm like this whole week, I was like, oh, my goodness, wow. I wonder what my blood pressure is over a 24-hour period or over a month period. And how is it different when I'm exercising and on my game and really getting, you know, my five days a week of exercise in? Or what is it like when I'm writing a grant for NIH for four weeks in a row and not sleeping <laughs> well? Like, so then like, <laughs> exactly. Like, like, and then I believe that we actually have to challenge our system, like our, I mean, our health, our body. And so some of those challenges to your body probably actually makes it better. So when is high blood pressure for a certain number of hours okay? We have no idea because we yeah. don't have the data. So anyway, I'll get off my high horse on that. But that was, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to go down that route. But no, that's interesting. Question, it just, it's a perfect example to me of how we've done things historically. We have years and years of just excellent research, but it's based on a specific way of capturing information that does have some human in the loop potential. And now there's new technology and new data that actually could completely revamp some of that research, but also further the research that we could do. So what's the potential of having a sensor that does measure blood pressure? Again, I think that we don't even have a picture of a 24-hour period in the life of a healthy person. What is their blood pressure? In fact, I actually have spoken to a few companies. Again, it's just kind of really crazy. I just got inundated, which I think when that happens, that means I need to get in this space and do some work. But I did meet a company, I did meet a company that has a wearable 
sensor that's actually not a cuff, but it's really, it's a, I can't disclose all the details, but it's just a sensor that can actually detect blood pressure and do it continuously without you actually having to press a button. And like Is that the, right? That's fascinating. And they, it's a startup and they actually got over a hundred adults to wear it and they were shocked. They compared you know, it none to of the them have been, quote unquote, None of them have been diagnosed, exactly, but none of them have been diagnosed with high blood pressure. But right. there were times during the day when their blood pressure was high. And so I think that it gives us a potential to have a better understanding of human physiology and how the environment impacts our bodies. And I think it'll spark research in other areas. You know, how does your, how do your lungs respond when you're spending a week in downtown New York or in a, you know, an area that has car exhausts versus middle of Wisconsin in the woods? Like, how does your body adjust? I mean, I think our body does work. You know, our lungs clean up dirty particles and and we're fine afterwards. But I think it's different for someone who's visiting versus someone who lives there. It's the situational factors. And, you know, I I think about, have you ever seen the movie Amelie? Amelie. Amelie. Yeah, it's a French movie. Oh, it's so good. It's it's one of our favorites. Okay, Um, I have to add that. Yeah, it's a quirky film, and it's this girl that that sort of grows up in 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 France and in Paris, and it's her story. It's a really neat story. But the thing that came to mind is her her father, a physician, would examine her, and because he never touched her, like he never like showed her love or anything like that. The only time she he would touch her was during her examinations, and her heart would just like pound very rapidly and because of that he felt like she had a heart condition (laughs) oh my goodness like no dad you're like freaking me the hell out because you're (laughs) you're like everyone has some anxiety because you actually want to know you want confirmation immediately that you're actually doing okay yeah so to your point right oh that's interesting yeah i have to watch that one i love those kind of movies and stories I think you'll enjoy it. It's it's one of our favorites. It's a, a really good one. But regardless, yeah, I mean, you br- you're bringing up some really great points, right? And so we're going to have to really examine some of the basic assumptions that that have been made if we're to use, like you said, you know, quantitative over the qualitative that we've been using for a while, this data. So maybe you can share with us uh, a project or research that you've done that's helped improve the way that we do things in healthcare. Wow, I think that I like that you feel that I've done something that improves things in healthcare. I see myself as very much a researcher, and despite all of the amazing opportunities, awards, and high accolades, I am—I feel like I'm still just beginning. Okay, seriously. How about a project yeah, that sticks ahead. out as like this was wonderful? Like this is something that you felt proud of. Oh, I have a lot of those. I'm, I'm <laughs> so I, I could get, I will. I mean, I, I, because it's just so exciting. I'm, I'm kind yeah. of, you know, mad scientist type. And then, you know, we go out there with our sensors and do things and learn. And every single time we go out, we find something that we are truly excited about. Yeah. So sticking with cardiovascular health, we had a project where we, in a simulated environment, a heart simulator, we partnered with, uh, there's a company called Kind Heart. And they make pretty, pretty sort of like hybrid simulations. And okay. I think I'll just be clear. I mean, so similar to airline pilots where they have flight simulators to learn, you know, rare and unusual circumstances in case you have to land on the Hudson River, right? right. Um, they practice those things. And so they've been doing that since the 19, I, I think the link 
system came out in like the 1930s, 1940s. But healthcare and medicine, we've only really started getting into simulation probably around the 1980s. So they've mm-hmm. got, you know, a 50 year lead on us. But this one company called Kindheart and has a hybrid a standard, simulator. Right? right? I mean, it's a standard not in everyone, industry, but not a standard it's in a, Exactly. There are yeah. some standards that are coming and, you know, in a different areas, but it's definitely not a holistic standard across healthcare and medicine. So that's why, I mean, once that happens, then I feel I will have achieved my goal. <laughs> so I, that's the answer to that question, why I don't believe that I've arrived yet, because it's not, it's not a, a standard across all of healthcare to use simulation training before we interact or to complement our healthcare training. It's not a standard. So the example, Kind Heart does hybrid simulations where they um, 3D print body cavities out of you know various silicones, latex, and, and hard plastic materials. And then they actually use some bovine organs that they get from the butcher. So talk about dual use. They're eating beef or bacon or whatever, we actually go and get some of the other parts that people don't eat so that we can actually practice procedures on. So they found a way to actually perfuse a bovine heart and actually give it electrical signals that makes it really? make it beat like a heart. So wow. you're looking at this heart That's sitting in this fabricated human chest and they have done a great job of being able to train and assess heart surgeons that are in their early stages of their career, um, cardiothoracic fellows. And so what we did was put motion sensors on the fellows as well as the assistants when they're putting the simulated patient on cardiopulmonary bypass. And we did it for three early heart surgeons and three very experienced senior heart surgeons with 15 years of experience under their belt. And what were you measuring for? We were looking, we were just looking at their movement. Okay. You know, how they use their right hand, how they use their left hand. What is it that they're doing? Digitizing all of the steps and maneuvers that they make when they are placing a patient on cardiopulmonary bypass. Wow. It confirmed for us as it has using sensors and motion tracking data that there is a signature. It almost is like a beautiful painting. There is a specific signature that's created for each medical procedure that we do. When you're doing it correctly, it looks a certain way. Um, at the, every time? If it's, yeah. Wow. Every time. What's really amazing about that is that if you ask the surgeons what they do, they always think that they do things differently than others because they were trained differently. They were trained to do this or do that, use this type of instrument, start on the left and progress to the right. And then others say, oh, we always start on the right and progress to the left. And, you know, we use a right angle, we use a tonsil clamp. And so when the surgeons describe what they do, they tend to use descriptors that focus on their tools and their steps. Whereas the motion data actually is more pure data in that it just shows the direction and the velocity of their movements. And what's really cool is the direction and the velocity of their movements ironically has nothing to do with the surgeon itself, but it has to do with the anatomy. And the heart's always in the same place, mostly unless you have a disease where your heart's on the wrong side. But what that means is that doesn't matter if you start on the left, doesn't matter if you start on the right, but because you're still 
doing a sequence of maneuvers around the heart, the final painting or picture is the same. Is there a That's picture? Like, is there a painting? It is. Is that well? I call them painting because it's the easiest way to explain it. Because you have to see the data. So I'm, <laughs> when I'm giving. No, I get that. But is yeah, there, I mean, there's a painting there, that's created. It's like, great. It's like two paintists, two uh, painters, two artists <laughs> talking about painting the Mona Lisa, right? I, I like, wonder what I'm that looks use like. All yellow. Okay, good for you. And I'm going to use this size brush <laughs> and all variations of yellow, yellow tones. Well, great. I'm going to use orange tones. But in the end, if it all looks like the Mona Lisa, who cares about the color? Right, right. Huh. And so that has been, when you talk about data, the data that exists in healthcare regarding hands-on procedures in medicine, when is verbal data that physicians dictate and they use their own descriptors because there's no standard. That's interesting. Well, you, you know, what would be interesting to, to hear from you, Carla, is, is, is now that you have this data set, is there a way to, say, do a test? to determine aptitude and, and potential capability of a student that's to take a career down a certain path. Yes, definitely. Nice. There are some people that are gifted in terms of their haptic ability, mm -hmm. science of touch, perception, and situation awareness. There are some people that are gifted. We've seen it in medical students. You can't tell by looking at them, but you know when they're coming and what comes out of their mouth. But when you see their touch data, it's amazing. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, I appreciate you <laughs> taking us down that road. And, and uh, folks, you're sitting in, in your car or maybe you're running, listening to this, working out, and you're like, wow, I wonder what would happen if you put some sensors on me <laughs> right now, my yeah. blood pressure. And that's what Dr. Pugh does. You know, she, she dives into the things that later become technologies that change healthcare for the better. And so, Give us a, an example, Carla, of, of a time when you had a setback and, and what you learned from that. Wow. I had that all planned out. You know, I'm like, yeah, failure is the key to success. And <laughs> like, I've made a whole bunch of mistakes. I mean, I'm human, right? And, yeah, and I've learned a lot along the way. And I kind of, you know, I think about failures, if you will. For me, it's setbacks in terms of achieving my dream in an efficient manner. So most of my failures for me are actually self defined because mm -hmm. I'm impatient and I want to, you know, <laughs> once you have some level of success, you're like, hey, we found this. Let's go team. And folks are yeah. looking at you like, okay, that's cute. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I look at, I, I lump them, you know, failures of communication. I think that's the mm -hmm. biggest thing. Like, so that's just yeah. been my, you know, how do I learn how to communicate? How do I learn to tell the story in different ways such that the engineers see yes. that this is really cool and that this is something that they can actually thrive in a career and making a huge discovery and partnering with us. Same thing with the data scientists and those that are doing artificial intelligence. So I think that when you are passionate in an area that's not quite mainstream, you have to slow down and find ways of communicating that such that you can then build the team and the interest and the support to carry it across the finish line. Love it. Yeah, that communication's key. So if you had to say, out of all the neat things that you're working on, Dr. Pugh, if you had to say, decide on one, which one would you say is the most interesting and exciting project right now? 
Yeah, there's some things I can't tell because yeah, I have IP that's pending, yep, um, yep. And, and it's very tempting because you know, you. this is a great <laughs> form to communicate. Um, I think that people are starting to get it regarding the use of sensors to assess human performance broadly. So whether it's human physiology or whether it's actually surgeons performing complex procedures in the operating room. I think that what's been most exciting is that there are a number of people who have looked at motion tracking data. Mm -hmm. Um, And I find it interesting, right? Because that's the golf swing data. It's the same thing, right? right? But to Mm -hmm. apply that process to healthcare, which is what we're doing, and we've done it for a number of different procedures. The one that's been newly exciting for us is to apply it in the field of ophthalmology. And the reason being is that all of the other procedures we had done to date have large gross motor movements, moving your hand, putting in sutures, grabbing instruments from a table, using a variety of instruments for a variety of different movements. And so when we had an ophthalmologist express interest, we're like, oh my goodness. What am I going to do They do things that have read because they're under the microscope and they have these really small instruments and their field is just... So much smaller, even yeah. their operative field is smaller, the eyeball, right? I'm yeah. in the abdomen, swimming around my whole hand. There yeah. with the eyeball, like such a smaller field, that's one thing, smaller huh. instruments, and then really fine motor movements. So we were a little intimidated and weren't sure we were wanting a failure, but then we were so curious. Yeah. <laughs> we couldn't resist. <laughs> so... Yeah, it didn't take long. We we thought about it for like <laughs> five nanoseconds. I'm like, okay, great, fun. let's do it. Yeah, I so, thought you were say five days. <laughs> no, no, we're kind of compulsive. No, I mean it, it was. I mean, it, just to, just to, I mean, we thought about it for five nanoseconds. It took five days to schedule it. Yeah, um, no, I'm yeah. Sure. So to get across campus with our equipment, we went to and you know this ophthalmologist already had a cataract surgery simulator. Like okay. it's perfect. So, it's a very forward-thinking uh, partner that you found. Yes, and already kind of thinking about data and using artificial intelligence to analyze um, nice. his operative data. And so we went in, we went to his lab, we looked at what he had, we instrumented him, we instrumented his instruments, and we instrumented the cataract surgery simulator. And we're smiling to this day. So, yeah. Yeah. So what did you guys find out? It's the same. It's the same. They have, I wish I could, I need to partner with an artist so that I could name all of these standard pictures that come up with motion data from surgical procedures. Because it all, they all look different, but they're meaning the heart surgery, cardiopulmonary bypass data creates a pattern that looks different than a cataract surgery. But I, I need, I need a partner with some artists to help me name these things because they're just amazing yeah, but well, hey, if, if, to if, be able to capture that data, and obviously we had to increase the gain so that we could actually see all the interesting, you know, idiosyncrasies and nuances within the data that actually represented what he was doing. It's beautiful. So that was really exciting because that was a far end extreme of of different surgical movements. So that's really that was really exciting. Yeah, no, that's. Uh... The other end of the spectrum as far as movement, uh, space where the surgeon is working and you get a similar output that obviously looks different because of the particular type of surgery, but fascinating, fascinating motion data, people. 
This is a <laughs> fascinating place to be working today. So this interview, wow, I mean, I'm just looking at the time and it's already flown. So let's uh, dive into the lightning round. I've got a, I got a few questions for you in a lightning round fashion, and then we'll, we'll finish that with the favorite book that you recommend to the listeners. You ready? Sure. Okay. What's the best way to improve healthcare outcomes? Get better outcomes, definition, outcome metrics. Redefine the outcome metrics. What is the biggest mistake or pitfall to avoid? Blanket application of results from qualitative or mixed data that's not validated. Love that one. How do you stay relevant as an organization despite constant change? Listen, collaborate, and create a culture of innovation. What's one area of focus that drives everything in your work? The data. (laughs) data. (laughs) All about the data. It's all about the data. Dr. P, these next two are more on a personal note. What's your number one health habit? My number one health habit? Yeah. Interesting. So I am currently hacking my sleep habits. Nice. Using the Aura Ring. Oh, which one's the Aura Ring? O-U-R-A. Oh, okay. And it Best measures... Best data ever. Unfortunately, I have no... Uh, no, it... I was going to say, unfortunately, I haven't invested in the company. I have no ties with it, but um, it has the best sleep data ever. And I've had colleagues who compare this data. They wear both the Aura Ring and the Fitbit. A little less on the exercise because it does have an accelerometer, but it's only on your finger. Okay. So if you're using a Stairmaster and not moving your arms or something, you know, less. But temperature, heart rate, movement, the, the phases of sleep, it's amazing. And I can tell how my sleep is affected by what I eat after 6 p.m. Wow. They don't know that. I know it. Right, Yeah, they don't have any association, but they don't have the food data, right? Right. But I'm a foodie and believe that food is like, from a health perspective, the definite base intake of food affects your health in so many ways, and it definitely affects sleep. Fascinating. The aura ring, something to look up. I'll definitely put it on my list. And and what's your number one success habit? Number one success habit? Mm-hmm. Oh, try, try again. Reflect, forgive yourself, <laughs> forgive others, do it again and do it better. Love it. That's a great message. <laughs> and what book would you recommend to the listeners, Carla? Oh my goodness. I have one that I had from childhood. I know people like new, new books all the time, but... My all-time favorite is Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Love that. I think that's been recommended once other times. Really? It's, it's, it's poetry, right? Oh, it's a story. It's a, oh, maybe, oh, wow. it's, maybe I'm thinking of a different book then. Yeah, no, Siddhartha is kind of a life journey story and just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting there in the boat with him, you know, like, yeah, no, you have to just, it's a short read too. And, and so something you can read it in a weekend, but it's, it's, uh, I think what's interesting is, you know, that book was probably written over 40 years ago and it's still the life lessons and the story is still applicable today. Is that right? Yes. Love that. What a great recommendation folks for all of the show notes, uh, from today's meeting with Dr. Carla Pugh, go to outcomesrocket.health. And uh, type in Carla in the search bar. You'll see a full transcript as well as links to Siddhartha and also the work that uh, Dr. Pugh is up to. So make sure you check that out at outcomesrocket.health. Search bar, type in Carla. 
And uh, Carla, wow, this has been a, a really fun conversation. I'd love if you could just leave us with a closing thought and then the best place where the listeners could learn more about you and your work. Yeah, no, my closing thought is really back to you. Thanks so much for reaching out and thanks for taking the time. And I'm ecstatic that you have insight and interest into to the work that we're doing and helping that communication thing that we've been working on in terms of getting the word out and collaborating. I think, yeah, there's no way to hide. I'm a professor at Stanford University. <laughs> so uh, you can find me, Carla, well, it's CPU at stanford.edu. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, appreciate you very much, Carla, and, and appreciate you sharing your, your passion and the insights you've gained. And uh, definitely looking forward to staying in touch. Thank you. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day. Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more. 